In Hebrews chapter 11, this first two verses might become memorized here over these weeks here. It says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Then the the writer of Hebrews takes the great story of Noah and summarizes it in one verse. And verse 7 there in Hebrews 11 says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now that's rather amazing if you think about it. The writer of Hebrews condenses Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, all down into one verse. Now that assumes in the mind of the writer of Hebrews that his readers knew the story. It had to. They knew it well. They were, after all, Hebrews. The Old Testament was their scriptures. And they were very familiar with all the stories of all these ancient heroes of the faith that the writer of Hebrews mentioned, the men and the women. As we've noted in the last couple of weeks, in James chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 17 says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, the flip side of that, of course, means that true faith is supported by action. Action is a result of, or action is a positive consequence of faith. It's what follows. And Noah is certainly the classic illustration of that fact in the Old Testament. This action of faith is in some ways more remarkable than anyone else. Throughout Scripture... We are taught that men and women come to God by faith alone and then go on to live by faith. That simply means to take God at His word and to trust that word as true. Now, coming to God has never been about works. Never been about works. It's always been about faith, and I think we're beginning to see that as we're going through this amazing chapter there in Hebrews. The gospel of grace and the gospel of faith has had become a corrupted system of works. And the message of salvation by grace through faith was lost to the people there in Israel. Now, Satan always twists always corrupts God's Word to the point where men and women begin believing the lie. So, the gospel of grace and faith is not new. The righteous shall live by faith. We've seen how that's actually from the Old Testament. That's not a totally new New Testament concept. It means that the righteousness, uh, the means of righteousness is faith, both in the New Covenant, the New Testament, and the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to his readers and therefore to us as well. Now, we've seen the example of Abel and the life of faith as he began that whole life of faith, the beginnings of faith. We've seen the example of Enoch in his walk with faith or his walk of faith. And now we come to Noah and the work of faith. 
Noah's story is really rather amazing. And without reading all of chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 this morning, we do want to look at the essentials of the story. Otherwise, we're really not going to understand the one verse in Hebrews 11 about Noah. Now, the only detail that we have in Hebrews, verse 7 there of chapter 11, is that Noah prepared an ark. That's all he says. We don't know why, or the writer doesn't tell us why. It refers to things not yet seen. seen. What are those things not yet seen? How did he condemn the world? How did he become an heir of righteousness? All of that is a truth that's in that one verse, but the writer of Hebrews doesn't explain any of it. So in order for us to get the full account of Noah's faith, we have to go back to that great story. And that's what I appreciate about Hebrews here. It takes us back to all these amazing characters in the Old Testament. Now the writer of Hebrews starts out by saying, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. Who warned him? The writer doesn't say. Except that the Hebrew word for warn means to be divinely warned. It's not just some, somebody. Noah had nothing to go on but what God said. Nothing, just God's word. And God told him something was going to happen that had never happened in the history of the world. And we find this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, when we read, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Now, only 1,500 years or so had passed since creation. The story of man on earth had just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse since the fall. Sin is running rampant. It's an ever-increasing offense to God, and so God delivers this decree and, um, that He's going to destroy the whole earth, and then He goes on to say He's going to do it specifically by water. He's going to wipe out the human race, sparing only Noah and his family and no one else. And verse 18 says, I will establish my covenant with you. He gives him a promise. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now this is a, really a remarkable judgment event in the Old Testament. The destruction of the entire human race with the exception of eight people. Now this in human history is the greatest of all cataclysmic judgments. It's the second most astounding event in the Old Testament. The first, of course, being the astounding event uh, of the creation of the entire universe in six days. But the flood is next to that in its monument, as a monumental event. Now, what brought about this judgment by God? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 where it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. Again, only 1,500 years worth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The wickedness was so all-encompassing that every intent of the thoughts of people's hearts was only evil all the time. It's hard to imagine that. This is chronic rather than intermittent. 
every thought, every idea, every motive, every imagination, and therefore every deed, the result of every thought was an expression of the fallenness of man, the expression of the depravity of man. Verse 11 adds, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. You know what's really concerning? These verses in Genesis could be describing our own world today. Could be describing our own country today. The Hebrew word for violence is chamas, violence, wrong, cruelty, injustice, unrighteousness. It's used of abuse of people and general rebellion. Their thoughts and actions were only evil all the time. And so verse 6 tells us that the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. He was grieved. The word indicates that it caused Him great pain in His heart to see what was taking place. Now was God saying that He had made a mistake? No, not at all. This is kind of a Hebrew way to express total and complete grief for what mankind had chosen and what they had become. It's kind of similar to the statement that Jesus made about Judas. You remember that when he says it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. The Hebrew word for wipe is a really strong Hebrew word. Macha means to wipe out to blot out, to obliterate, to exterminate, uh, to destroy. Very graphic language. He was serious about this. He's going to erase mankind from the planet. With that decision made, God comes to Noah and speaks to him for the very first time, actually, in verse 13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all peoples, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And the message that he gives to Noah is this message of massive, massive judgment. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that message from God? Staggering would be an understatement. They could have, there could have been millions of people in the world by, by that time. We, we don't have the exact number, uh, but there are estimates uh, that go from anywhere from 8 to 100 million. Remember, people were living to 900 years. You can have a lot of babies in 900 years. Now, Noah, just to believe that this is actually going to happen was certainly an act of faith. But then in verse 14, God tells him, so make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now the closest people can come up with, uh, not sure exactly what gopher wood is, but probably some kind of a cypress, uh, cypress tree. And then make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now the word for ark is interesting as well, teva in Hebrew. It's a word used for a box or a chest. It's not shaped like a typical ship that you would think about. It's got no propeller. It's got no sails. It not not, doesn't have any rudder. There's no pilot, no captain, no navigator. It's not shaped like a typical ship. It doesn't need to go anywhere. The purpose was not a destination. The purpose was just to float and to save. 
Interestingly, there's only one other place in the Old Testament that actually uses that particular word, and that's in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, to describe the box that baby Moses was put in to float down the river. Isn't that interesting? It was an ark of bulrushes, kind of a rectangular basket shaped like a box. So God used a box to save Moses in order to save his people Israel, and God used a box, much larger, to save Noah so he could save the human race. In both cases, the box was a refuge from death to provide a future, in one case for Israel, another case for mankind. Now remember, Noah was not a shipbuilder. He was not a shipbuilder, and this, this wasn't a ship, this was a big old box, uh, but it was a huge, huge task, and he certainly couldn't do it on his own. Even with his three sons, that would have been an overwhelming task. He was more than likely hired a bunch of carpenters and architects to accomplish this. Now, it doesn't say that he did that, but it's kind of a natural thing to do. Um, people don't need to be a believer or even believe in a project in order to work. As long as they're getting paid, right? They don't care. If stupid old Noah wants to build this massive box, I don't care, just just pay me at the end of the day. So God gave Noah the basics of what was going to be needed. So he says, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Some kind of oily, tarry-like substance for waterproofing inside and out. And I can imagine Noah's mind beginning to think as he's getting this instruction. His his mind is starting to whirl. Okay, I need to build a box, build myself an ark, a a box big enough to fit my family, right? But then it gets very interesting in verse 15 where it says, This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Seriously? God, that's three and a half football fields long and a football field and a half wide. We don't need something that big for my family. But God goes on and says, make a roof over it. Leaving below the roof and opening one, one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Three stories. This was definitely not a design for speed, but again, it wasn't going to go anywhere. This was a design for stability. If you think about it, this was the largest boat ever built until the 19th century when they started building those giant ships using steel and iron. But Noah's Ark had very specific dimensions given by God, and the dimensions were a six-to-one ratio of length to width. We talked about this a little little while ago in uh, one of our messages. Today, you can talk to any structural engineer, and they'll tell you it's been discovered that the absolute best ratio for building a seaworthy craft that's large enough and is going to hold a lot of cargo would be a what? Six-to-one ratio. And I mentioned this a couple months ago. A number of evolutionary engineers at the Smithsonian Institute wrote in one of their journals, quote, we've got to admit we don't believe in the story of Noah's Ark, but the dimensions given in the Bible are the exact perfect dimensions to cause it to be seaworthy. But then that's our God. Perfect 
and exact all the time. Now, just to get a little better perspective of the size and capacity of the ark, the internal space uh, would be about 100,000 square feet. And apparently that's enough to, if, if you get 520 rail boxcars and stack them in the, sh- in the sh- shape of this box here, that would be the amount of space inside the ark with thousands of com- compartments holding up to at least 100,000 sheep. Now I say they didn't have 100,000 sheep, but sheep is basically the average size of the animals that would have been the, on the ark, some smaller, some larger. I say, well, you know, what about elephants and lions and hippos and these giraffes? They take up a whole lot more space. Not if they were babies or cubs or little adolescent animals. Why would God use a fully mature pair of animals if he needed to use them to repopulate that earth again? God knew what he was doing and what size boat he needed to care for all of his animals, to care for eight people and enough food to feed them all. Now, if you haven't had an opportunity to get over to Kentucky to see the Ark experience, how many have seen that? Okay, there's a few. It's well worth the trip with its full-size replica of the Ark. And as you walk through the three floors, it explains in great detail how all the food provisions could be stored, how they, where, where and how they could keep all those animals, um, and how, how they could be cared for, and how they could have enough food and, how, uh, and enough drinking water. Uh, they, they talk about how they can uh, take care of all the waste disposal. You can imagine the waste disposal on, on an ark like this. It's fascinating. It's well worth the trip. Now, when God gives Noah to the, the command to do this, it's 120 years before the flood. This is a long-term project with no electricity, no circular saws, no lumber yards to put your order in. And God says in verse 16, make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. That's about a foot and a half. foot and a half opening with, with the roof coming down overhanging. Um, probably for much-needed ventilation. Could you imagine? Uh, in, in a boat that big and uh, the, all those animals. He went on to say, put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Now, Noah doesn't know it yet, but he's going to spend a year in this giant stable. I can imagine him asking the questions in his mind, Why? Why should I do this? I don't get it. Because verse 17 says, I'm going to bring floodwaters. God then answers that question. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Now the word for flood is a technical term, mabul. And that's used only for this flood. Primarily, Genesis 6 through 9 uses this particular word to describe this flood. It's as if God picked a word exclusively for this event. The only other time it's used is in Psalm 29, verse 10, referring back to this flood, where it says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. His purpose is to destroy all air-breathing Creatures, everything that is on the earth will die. This this was not a local flood. This was a worldwide 
flood. There's been arguments back and forth uh, on, that, on that issue for years. But reading from, uh, from the, about this from a research volume called The Outline of Biblical Usage, it says the following, Some think Noah's flood was only local. However, the description of it found in Genesis 6-8 to makes this patently absurd. If it were local, Noah had 120 years to migrate out of the area to safe ground. Why waste all that effort building a ship? He only had to move, listen, less than 1,500 feet a day for 120 years to reach the furthest point on the globe. The real reason, this volume says, for insisting on a local flood is the acceptance of evolution with its long geological ages. Most holding that view are not willing to allow a global worldwide flood to have happened less than 5,000 years ago. To admit that eliminates the need for the geological ages because most of the geological stratas would have been rapidly laid down by Noah's flood. Listen to God's description of what took place in chapter 7, verse 11 of Genesis. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, again, very precise, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. You remember us talking about the springs of the deep uh, a couple months ago. Uh, And the, the fact that it was only fairly recently the science or scientists, uh, oceanographers, just discovered, huh, look at that, there are springs at the bottom of the ocean. So all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Just think about what's happened in Kentucky recently, for the past week or so, and the devastation, and the people that have lost their lives just in that In the time of Noah, you've got all the springs of the ocean bursting forth, and floodgates of heavens were opened, downpours like you've never seen before for 40 days and 40 nights. And verse 17 goes on to say, For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth. Now listen to the all-encompassing language that the writer uses here. Uh, The waters rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. That's 22 feet. Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Everything, um, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that moved along the ground and birds were wiped from the earth. Only, only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Folks, they found fossils of sea creatures and seashells all over the world. In the middle of the deserts, on top of the highest mountains, this was a worldwide flood. 
The Bible is also very clear about that when it discusses the theology of the flood. This is a universal flood because it compares it to the coming final destruction, the final battle when Jesus comes at the end. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that in the way that God destroyed the world by water, He will destroy the world by fire in the final judgment. And that's going to be a universal destruction in both cases. But in this pronouncement of destruction, God also gives Noah a promise. And it's there in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. A covenant is a promise. He gives Noah a promise. And this is the first time covenant actually appears in Scripture. It's a covenant with Noah and his family to spare them. But I will establish my covenant with you, God says, and you will enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Now he's starting to get the details of why this box needs to be three football fields long and a football field and a half wide and three stories high. You know, there had to be all kinds of questions, even then, swirling around in his mind. Two of every animal? How in the world am I going to do that? What's a flood? Never seen one of those before. In fact, what's rain? Never seen that before. If there was ever a moment for sensible doubt, this was it. Can you imagine saying, this is nuts? It makes absolutely no sense. And on top of all, Noah, in verse 21, was told, you are to take every kind of food, every kind of food, that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. <laughs> Imagine saying, are you kidding me? Seriously? How am I going to do that? But that's what makes this all so remarkable and the faith of Noah so remarkable. When we read in verse 22, quote, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Folks, that is a monumental act of faith. We struggle with little things about faith. Put yourself in Noah's place. There was no, this was no theoretical faith. This was not just an intellectual faith. This was not a faith that just, just made, made, makes you feel good. Yeah, God is there and he's out there. He's kind of, kind of taking care of me. I, I believe in God. That was a faith that had become conviction, which then was put into action. We've talked about that over and over. That was a faith that was alive and active. And that's why verse 8 said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 goes on to say, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. You can't exercise that kind of faith without walking faithfully with God. Remember, without faith, it's impossible what? To please God. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah and his family to live in a world that was so corrupt? Every other human being was drowned. They had no one to encourage them. They had no one to spur them on towards love and good deeds. They would have loved to have a community together encouraging them and working together with them. 
This was a remarkable man. It's a man who believed that God is. We talked about that last week. And would do what he said he would do. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. He believed in a sacrifice like Abel did. Um, he, he, believed, uh, he believed that he was a sinner and needed a sacrifice for his own sin. And he needed to receive grace and forgiveness from God. That was all part of his walking faithfully uh, with God. And just like Enoch, he walked faithfully with God. He was, he, um, he was in true righteous communion and fellowship and a personal relationship with God. He was a righteous man. Now all that brings us back now to Hebrews chapter 11 as we step back into the New Testament. So what's the writer trying to convey to us in that one verse? This is an amazing testimony of this man's face. Verse 7 says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. Ah, now it starts to make sense. What are those things not yet seen? Cataclysmic world judgment brought on by a flood, not yet seen. Brought on by rain and the springs from the deep, not yet seen. All three things had not yet, uh, he had not yet seen. Did Noah know that the world was corrupt? Well, absolutely. Did he know that he was different than everybody else? Yes, absolutely. Did he understand that God was holy and righteous and a God of judgment? Of course he did. He knows his God, and he walks with his God, and he trusts his God. So being warned by God about things not yet seen, he acted because he trusted. Now there's three things about his faith that I just want us to see before we end this morning, and they're they're listed right there in that verse in Hebrews. First of all, he obeyed God's word. He obeyed God's word when it was way beyond anything that he could experience or conceive or even comprehend. But that too is a New Testament concept, isn't it? We talk about that. Paul, as he closes chapter 3 of Ephesians, he writes this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, or what? Imagine. Beyond our comprehension. This is the same God, Old Testament, New Testament. And about Noah, uh, Hebrews says, By faith Noah, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Now this was not shaking in your boots kind of fear. The word used here is a holy reverence, a holy awe of God. In holy reverence and awe of God, he built an ark for the salvation of his household for 120 years. For 120 years, he built a massive 15,000-ton boat in the middle of the wilderness for one reason, because God told him to do it. And God told him the flood would come and the judgment was inevitable, and so he obeyed. Folks, this is the essence of faith, is it not? Faith doesn't have to understand. Faith doesn't have to comprehend. We, we like everything laid out in an outline form, and we like the before, beginning, after. The, we, we like the whole thing, and then, okay, then I'll believe it. It's not faith. Faith reaches out for something that is beyond experience, beyond, beyond comprehension. We, understand, we, we do understand that to a certain extent as we walk in faith ourselves today, placing our lives in God's hand for the promise of what? For eternity. We've got His promises for heaven. We're living in faith, trusting Christ for, for a heaven we've never seen yet. 
to escape a judgment we've never seen because the Bible says that all sinners will go to hell. That's the truth in Scripture. We live in faith and by faith to obey the gospel, which is the ark of safety for us. The ark is another type, Old Testament type, for for us today. God has provided for us an ark to rescue us from future judgment, and we have entered into that ark. What is that ark? That ark is Jesus. That ark is Jesus. Scripture talks about us being what? In Christ. Ephesians 1.7, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is what? In Christ. The new creation has come. Galatians 3.26, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Every time now that you read about being in Christ, you you can think about being in the safety of God's ark, who is Jesus, protecting us from judgment and with that promise of eternal life in heaven. So his faith, first of all, demonstrated his obedience to God's word um, in something which he had never experienced. He couldn't even conceive. Secondly, by faith he announced God's judgment. See, he, he too was a preacher of judgment. Verse 7 in Hebrews 11 there says, By his faith he condemned the world. Well, what does that mean? By his obedience in building this massive box in the middle of the wilderness, because it was going to rain and there was going to be a flood, the likes of which no one had ever experienced, he condemned the world. The very act of building that ark was a constant statement for 120 years that judgment was coming. Judgment was inevitable. And that's why Peter in 2 Peter 2 verse 5 refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher that spoke on behalf of the living God who declared the justice and judgment of God. The whole story of Noah and and the ark speaks to God's holiness. God hated sin. His desire to uphold the righteous and the greatness of His wonderful mercy was all-encompassing. As long as He built that ark, He was preaching and declaring the coming judgment. But even in this, even in this, we see God's patience and grace and mercy. 120 years of patience. At a time when God said every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. He said that before the 120 years started. Folks, that's our loving and merciful God. That's how loving and merciful He is. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. It wasn't as if all these people didn't have a clue. They knew what God required. They knew that God wanted a relationship with them. They knew a sacrificial substitute had to be offered for their sin and rebellion. Think back of Cain. He absolutely knew, and he rejected it and rebelled against it. And though it doesn't really say it, it doesn't actually say it, I I bet you that Adam preached. I mean, he lived for 930 years. (laughs) What else was he doing? I bet he was telling people that that they had been in the garden when it was perfect. 
And through their own stupidity and rebellion, sin had come into the world. But there was still hope because God then, in His grace, provided a means to cover that sin. Enoch preached. We talked about that. Enoch preached for 300 years. Methuselah preached for over 900 years. And Noah preached that the, that the building of the ark was the evidence that judgment was imminent. Finally, it was going to happen. And in the midst of all of that, God's powerful preachers, God's Holy Spirit was also at work to no avail. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. The Holy Spirit was convicting But because of our free will, He will not force people to make a decision. It was their choice, and it's still the choice of people today. So the generation of Noah's day had to be deliberately rejected. They rejected His sacrifice. They rejected the atonement. They had to reject repeated warnings and repeated messages of judgment and righteousness. Divine revelation had to be despised and rejected in their mind, in their mad dash into corruption. Sounds like our world today, doesn't it? But Noah's faith is marked by his obedience in doing exactly what God told him to do in his, and his willingness to be a preacher of righteousness and give that message that went along with the work that he was doing, proclaiming the inedible, the devastating, the worldwide judgment and the drowning of the human race that was coming. He was preaching that, that, the whole, that the only escape is righteousness. How many converts did he have? Not one. 120 years. Not one. He obeyed God's word. He preached God's judgment. And thirdly, he received God's righteousness. The end of verse 7 says, He became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Boy, that sounds like something the Apostle Paul would write, wouldn't it? There in the New, here in the New Testament. That sounds so New Testament. He, be, he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He believed God, and because he believed God's word, God granted him righteousness. That's what we call imputed righteousness. Uh, God's righteousness was credited to him. That's what it means in verse 8 in, in Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. Noah walked faithfully with God. Listen to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 again. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Noah is an Old Testament illustration of the justification by faith. In covenant relationship with God, he believed God. And God accepted his faith and granted him righteousness. He was a righteous man. He was blameless before God. Was he perfect? No, not by a long shot, especially when he gets drunk later on. No, wasn't a perfect man before men, but he was a perfect man before God because by faith, righteousness was credited to him. We understand that as a New Testament truth, but this is telling us that this is an Old Testament truth as well. In Romans chapter 3, we can read where, where Paul says, 
that by works of the law, no flesh is justified. You cannot be justified uh, before God by the things that we do. In Philippians 3, we'd find where Paul says, by, but now apart from the law, which he himself sought to be so perfect in all of his life as a Pharisee, so apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified. Did you hear that? That's the Old Testament, God's righteousness being proclaimed in the Old Testament. This righteousness, he goes on to say, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, the amazing doctrine of justification is given to the one who believes God. In Noah's case, he believed all that that God had revealed to him. In our situation, we believe God by faith in Jesus Christ. A complete revelation. And folks, when we believe that message from the heart, God will grant righteousness and cover us with his own righteousness and view us as righteous. Quick example, not in my notes. Something that used to drive me crazy when we were in Ivory Coast as missionaries. We would talk to some of our believers and they would describe themselves oh I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a poor sinner I said no you're not you're righteous you're righteous before God but yes we are we have that sinful nature that we're battling again but we are righteous that's an amazing fact amazing truth we are righteous before God and when we believe that in our heart He counts us blameless. He counts us righteous. And we're taken into that ark of safety. We're taken into Christ. And we are protected from all future judgment. That's what Peter is talking about. That's his message that he gives from the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter 3, Peter, Peter gets to talking about all the scoffers that didn't, uh, didn't believe Noah's message. And really, all the scoffers today that don't believe the message of God. And Peter writes... They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, referring to Jesus Christ, the word of God, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by, and by water, referring to the creation in Genesis chapter 1. But these waters also, um, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, referring obviously to the flood of Genesis 6. By the same word, talking about Jesus, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, the second massive judgment that's coming, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's coming a holocaust. Far worse than the first. And the only ark that's going to save us is Jesus Christ. And that's by faith. A faith that has become conviction and then turns into action. And Jesus' arms are open wide that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The door of the ark is still open. Piece of trivia, if you ever go to the ark, down the ark experience, on the inside of the door, on the side of the ark, you can look and there's a cross on, on the door, signifying that Jesus is the door into himself, our great ark. This morning we come to the communion table.
with joy in our heart for what Christ has done for us on that cross. And we celebrate that cross, which is the doorway into the ark, which is Christ. In a moment, we're going to be singing a song, and I'm going to have Nancy and Marcia sing it first as we prepare our hearts and as we ask the Holy Spirit to uh, search our hearts to make sure that we are right before Him. But the song goes, Come to the table of mercy, prepared with the wine and the bread. All who are hungry and thirsty, come, and your souls will be fed. That's an invitation to Jesus. Come at the Lord's invitation. Receive from his nail-scarred hand. Eat of the bread of salvation. Drink of the blood of the Lamb.